God, we are so thankful for your church. We are so thankful that you have called us to be a part of your church, the body of Christ, the redeemed, the reconciled, the forgiven. And so we thank you for that great grace that you have given to us in your heart determined before the foundation of the world. And so we thank you for the ways in which you bless your church and you do that through the ministry that you give to each one of us, to one another. And you do that as that ministry that we have to one another is fueled and guided by our singular vision of your glory as it's revealed in Scripture. And so we pray that we would have hearts gladly yielded to all that you say and to see your divine wisdom and the beauty of that wisdom uh, for itself and in our own lives, even though it so often challenges the way that we naturally think and the, the way our culture wants us to think. But your word stands above it all. And we gladly yield to you, O Christ, our Lord. And we pray that even as we look this morning, again at the issue of the relationship of male and female to one another in those roles of authority and submission, that we would see your beauty, that we would embrace it, and that we would live according to your will and to know your favor and your blessing. And it is to that end we pray in your name. Amen. Well, as I mentioned, we are going to look again at this matter of authority and submission as it has been designed in gendered roles by God in the very order of creation. Now, we looked last week, some of you weren't here, but, uh, well, not last week, two weeks ago, at the issue of feminism. It was a little bit of a different message. It wasn't looking at particular passages of Scripture, but giving a broad overview of what has become a major factor of influence on our culture and the ways that we view male and female and our roles to one another. And so it seemed necessary, I think that it was, helpful, hopefully, in the big picture, to look at where it is the foundation of this ideology that shapes much of the way that we think of ourselves, our home, and even the church. Now, we sang this morning, I Surrender All. I love that song. And it gets at the heart of what it means to believe the gospel, namely that we surrender our lives, we bow ourselves at the feet, as it were, of Jesus, the Lord of heaven and earth. We listen to his voice as the voice of authority and the voice of truth as it rings true in our hearts by the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And we, as such, stand in contradiction to our culture in many, many ways and No less is this true than in the area of male and female and what that means according to God's design. It brings us in direct conflict in many ways to the principle of sin, our own flesh that still resides in us, and most certainly, again, to the culture around us. Now, the point two weeks ago was to show that feminism, even in its best forms, is an ideology, is an inescapable ideology that stands in conflict with biblical Christianity. And it is in conflict because it seeks to eliminate gender distinctions designed by God and in its most gross form to demonize true masculinity, to destroy true femininity, 
to devalue the home, to devalue children, and to deny the very existence of authority and submission as components of gendered roles within the home, within the church, and even to in society. And the reason that it was worth it, I believe, to spend that time that we did on feminism as a movement is because the great error, the great hook, as it were, that many have fallen to, particularly within the church, is to believe that in order to promote the dignity, the honor, the strength, the wisdom, the intellect, the beauty of femininity, you must embrace the ideology of feminism. And that simply is not true. And yet... It has had a massive influence, as I mentioned, on our culture, on the church, often undetected and altered the way that we view the very roles that God has designed us to fulfill as male and female. What God says is honorable, dignified, and of utmost value and importance. Many women have been taught, and men as well, explicitly and implicitly through media, education, and culture to view as dishonorable, ignoble, inferior, even to be hated and beneath the dignity, worth, and value of any human being, and especially women. And again, that goes directly contrary to what God has revealed to us. And Christianity, though not without its faults in its history, in terms of how it's been lived out under the hands of men, has done more, nonetheless, for the dignity and honor of women in marriage and children and family than anything else. God exalts that which He has made male and female. And God's image and God's glory is uniquely and fundamentally put on display in the harmonious union of complementary gender distinctions, male and female, designed in such a way that together humanity would rule over creation under God and flourish in joy and blessing and fruitfulness. So these are not merely points of vague interest, but of our utmost importance. They are certainly not fluid realities, that is what gender means, fluid realities of social construct and shifting self-perceptions of individuals, but they are immutable designs of creation that are central to our view of ourself and obedience to God's will. To think rightly, that is to think consistent with reality and to function properly in the family and in the church and even society, and to know God's blessing and human flourishing, we must come to grips with His designed for gendered roles. And of course, this is all preparing us to come in again to the book of First Peter, chapter 3, where this will be intensely in focus. One has said this, and said it well, in terms of our, the importance of understanding these roles as male and female says this, what we believe about our identity as man or woman is central to who we are as individuals, couples and families, and how each of us pursues our life calling. It will determine the way in which we act as wife or husband, as parents, as church members, and in the culture as we identify with the God who created us by design as man or woman. So this morning what we're going to do in our limited time is we're going to take a broad look at this, but looking at specific passages primarily. Looking at specific passages, first looking in Genesis 2 and God's design for male and female, His intention. Genesis 3, the ways that that was distorted. We'll look at those briefly. And then how God unfolds and instructs us and what 
it looks like to live out gendered humanity within the home and within the church as male and female. Now, obviously, we don't have time to spend much detail on each of the passages, so we'll look at it broadly, just pulling out those principled foundations on which God rests His instructions to us, His church, and those made in His image. And again, how we're to live within the family and within the church. The idea, this is in your bulletin, is that God has created gendered humanity, male and female, to complement one another for joy, for flourishing, and for rule over creation. So why don't we begin by you turning in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 2, that familiar chapter of Genesis chapter 2. Let's just again consider briefly God's design in its original, its unstained creation and establishment here in Genesis 2. Of course, this is before the fall. Genesis 2, as some of you may be aware, is shining the spotlight on Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 through 28, really on the sixth day of creation. So in Genesis chapter 1, God gives sort of this broad picture of the creation of the physical and immaterial and material universe in six days. And then in Genesis chapter 2, he narrows in on day 6, and particularly the creation of man, man, male and female, in his image. Now, read with me from verse 15 to verse 25, and then again, we'll just highlight a few points. Then the Lord God took the man and put him into the garden of Eden to cultivate it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you may not eat. For in the day that you eat from it, you will surely die. And then the Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. Out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the sky and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called a living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the cattle and to the birds of the sky and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper suitable for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and he slept, and he took one of his ribs, and he closed up the flesh at that place. The Lord God fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man, and brought her to the man. The man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. For this reason a man shall leave his father and his mother, and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh." And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Now God can do anything that he wants and he can do it in any way that he wants. So when God acts and when God speaks, he does it with great intentionality. In other words, it has a purpose. There is a reason that he does what he does the way that he does. God could have instantly formed man and woman out of the dust of the ground, given them some instructions and then sent them on their way, but he didn't. He did it in a very precise, a very ordered, a very purposeful, a very intentional way. That is, that he created man and then he created woman. And by the very design and the very method of his creation, he was establishing a foundation of the way that men and women are to relate to one another before him on creation. The ordered relationship of male and female husband and wife, and ultimately within his church and within his kingdom. 
So then notice that God created man first and then Eve. Notice as well that in creating man first, God gave a command and an ordered task to the man before the creation of woman. God created Eve from his side, from his rib. Eve was created as one corresponding to him and as a helper. And Adam, who gave names to the beastly creation, was also entrusted with that great honor of giving a name to this woman created from his own flesh. Now that's a pretty straightforward. There is within those who want to eliminate any distinction in roles, particularly the idea of authority and submission, come to this and read and hear in these words not an ordered role, not any sense of authority and submission that brings order to God's creation and to the relationship of male and female, but instead they hear only a flattening out of any sense of submission or authority. And in fact, their argument is then that Eve here is called a helper. Eve here is identified as a helper. What does that mean? Well, for some argue that this cannot mean in any way that Eve is to be in a subordinate role to Adam. In fact, God himself is called a helper. We won't read it in Psalm 121 and Psalm 146. Therefore, it is ludicrous to say that God is somehow set in an inferior and subordinate role. It merely refers to one who equally comes alongside to share this task of ruling over creation. God's being identified as a helper, and it is the same term. There's nothing going on there in in the original language. Brings rather a great dignity to the role at which God, woman, for which woman was created. It is, not, it is not a direct parallel between woman being called the helper and God who is the helper of his people Israel and the helper of his redeemed because neither is woman the sovereign over all from whom all things came into being. She is in fact one who was created by God and shares the most dignified role of being a helper. God created woman as a helper, not to be inferior, but to come alongside man and to aid him in his task of ruling over creation. And indeed, in in this relationship, there is great joy and there is a great fellowship, but the greater purpose is to fulfill the mandate that God has given to all humanity, namely to rule over creation. And the order, as I noted, is very purposeful. And it is to establish man as the head over creation and as the head over the gendered relationships of male and female. Now the argument against some is that headship is not mentioned directly here in Genesis chapter 2. Now let me just mention a few, actually six Demonstrations, however, of the headship of Adam here. First, and some of these we've already mentioned, Adam is not merely a name, but a comprehensive term for humanity. Mankind is not just an accident of language, it is a very intentional identification 
of the male gender as the head over humanity. We'll emphasize that, bring that up again. Man was created first. We mentioned this, the woman second as a helper, a point emphasized two times in the New Testament. We'll look at it later. Speaking of the woman's subordinate role within the home and within the church. In other words, that's not merely an accident. It is a very intentional act of God whereby to show the way that these relationships are ordered one to another. Notice thirdly that God gave the command to rule before the creation of the woman, entrusting man with the responsibility to both communicate, well, to communicate that to the woman. Adam was first given the task of ruling by naming the animals. Adam demonstrated his headship in naming his wife. And number six, God called to Adam first after the fall, implying his responsibility of headship as the head. In the fall, Adam failed to exercise his responsibility to instruct and to protect his wife. And so God calls to him because Adam was the one who failed in this responsibility. Scripture also makes clear that Adam stood in the place of ultimate responsibility for bringing sin into the world. As head of the human race, Paul says in Romans 5.12, that through one man sin entered into the world. Sin did not enter into the world by virtue of Eve's sin, though she was the first to sin, as it's recorded for us in Genesis 3, but it entered into the world through man. Why? Because he stands as head. In Acts 17.26, Paul refers to Adam as the head of the human race when he says, He, being God, made from one man every nation of mankind. Why could he use such language? Because he stands as head. Jesus Christ, we read it this morning, is the head over all of creation. He is the ruler. He is the authority. He is the king over all creation. Jesus Christ is the head of the church. And he is the head of a new humanity, a second Adam. So in other words, Adam's headship here was anticipatory and reflective ultimately of Christ's own headship over all of creation. It's not an accident, the order of creation. It's not an accident that he gave the command to the man. It is not an accident that woman was taken from man. It is not an accident or mere coincidence that man was held responsible for sin. There is here then an establishment of order of headship and submission within the very creation of the genders, male and female. They're grounded in creation, not in culture, nor are they grounded in the fall. And when God created it this way, he created it and he said, it is very good. It's very good. God did not do it this way for our Misery did not do it this way for oppression. He did not do it this way for inferiority. He did not do it this way to make one lesser and the other greater. He did it this way because it reflects his own nature and because in doing so, there would be harmony and joy and peace and flourishing among his creation. That's Genesis 2. Genesis 3, this is distorted. Now again, we've looked at this. I'm just going to mention a few things In Genesis verse 1 of Genesis chapter 3, the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field. Here we have the introduction of Satan who comes to corrupt what God has made as good. 
His sole goal going through the woman is to lead her away from the simplicity of devotion to God and the obvious flourishing and testimonies of his goodness that surrounded her to attack her own condition of joy to break this harmonious relationship. And so he, he does this first by introducing doubt into the mind of Eve regarding the goodness and the character of God in his command. Here has God surely said, you shall not eat from any tree of the, in the garden, any of the trees in the garden. Attacking here the character of God, questioning his goodness in the way that he created things and in his command. Satan then denied God's warning regarding the consequences of disobeying his command, inferring that God was lying and could not be trusted. The serpent said, you shall not die, which God said, you shall die in the day that you eat of it. And then thirdly, Satan deceived her by leading her to believe her true freedom and joy lied not in glad submission to God, but by acting independently from his authority to take hold of her own future her own joy, take it into her own hands and get out from under the oppression that God has established. That is, in fact, the pattern of all of Satan's deceptions. And it is, in fact, what we see even in those who come under the banner of feminism who want to destroy what God has made good. Now, we spent time on feminism. I'm not going to go over that again. But I want to show you there are three categories that reflect this very pattern of deception of Satan in the garden. And each of these are ways that the ideology of feminism has encroached upon the church. So there's secular feminism. That's its own deal. And then there's the way that it has infected the church. And that's really our main concern. There are three ways or categories, as I mentioned, in which we can see this. And I'm borrowing these categories. One is a radical sort of feminism that has come into the church. These are those who would still hold some kind of connection with Christianity, but utterly, utterly deny its basic principles and authority. Now, I'm just going to read a few of these, not all the quotes that I have. But let me give you some examples of this. And the idea behind this teaching is that all of Scripture reflects this result of the fall, namely this male dominance over creation and has been employed solely for the oppression of women and it needs to be discarded. In the more radical examples, uh, feminists who teach in many of the liberal seminaries, both Episcopalian, Presbyterian, Presbyterian Methodist, and so it's the liberal branches, who teach Satan here in Genesis 3 as the great liberator. The great liberator, in other words, the good guy who opened up to a door of opportunity and freedom for the woman that was previously, she was barred from. Let me give a few examples. Mary Daly, who opines the fact that Christianity fixates on the person of Jesus, a male, speaks of the incarnation in this way, as a uniquely masculine image and language for divinity it loses all credibility, so also the idea of a single divine incarnation in a human being of the male sex may give way in the religious conscience to an increased awareness of the power of being in all persons. In other words, maleness is to be rejected even at the deepest level of a male savior, and in fact, 
Rather, the divinity of God, that spark of God, is to be equally freed to be possessed by each individual in their own way. God knows that the day you eat of it, you will be like him. Another, Virginia Mullencott, or let me, Daphne Hansen says this, Christianity is a father-son religion, and as such, it has no place for independent adult women who are self-directing people. God knows in the day that you eat of it, you will be like him, and you will be wise like him. There is a complete rejection within this form of biblical authority, every possible perception of patriarchy and male titles for God, even the maleness of Genesis, is rejected. Genesis 3, as I mentioned, Satan is portrayed as the liberator. There is another more slightly conservative form of the way of feminism on the church, and it could be titled as reformist. And yet it still rejects the idea of authority and submission. Again, let me just give you a few examples. Rosemary Radford Ruther says this, Feminist theology cannot be drawn from the existing base of the Bible. The Old and New Testament have been shaped in their formation, their transmission, and finally their canonization to sacralize, sacralize patriarchy. She goes on to say, Feminist theology cannot be done from the existing base of the Bible since it has been shaped in their formation, again, uh, in patriarchy. She goes on to say, In their present form and intention, they are designed to erase women's existence as subjects and to mention women only as objects of male definition. In these texts, the norm for women is absence and silence. So therefore... Scripture must be read with what is entitled a hermeneutic of suspicion in which every text that even hints at any kind of male dominance or patriarchy must be removed and the true glory of women must be exercised from it or that passage of Scripture must be dismissed altogether. That's called a hermeneutic of suspicion. And again... It is a denial of any sense of male priority, any sense of gender distinction of roles in terms of authority and submission, and there is even a rejection of the maleness of Christ as having any significance on our redemption. As a matter of fact, one, Hansen, defines Christ as the prophet of Sophia, divine wisdom, who came to free all the oppressed and envisioned an inclusive community. Now, those are obviously far outside uh, our circles, anyway, of influence. And yet, there is an even more conservative, an even more conservative influence of feminism on the Christian church. These are called evangelical feminism. We might know it as egalitarianism. Some of you may have heard of that word, some have not. You hear of egalitarianism. It is those who have a high view of Scripture a commitment to the authority of Scripture, but hold nonetheless to the feminist ideology that equates submission with inferiority, sees male authority as a consequence of the fall, and taints all of exposition in which there is a distinction of roles between male and female. In other words, this would be our brethren who have women pastors, women elders, and so forth, because they see no distinction of role. In these writings of evangelical feminists, egalitarians, there's a strong emphasis on Jesus' treatment of women with equal dignity. 
his considering them full disciples and letting them participate in his ministry and granting them the honor of being witnesses to his resurrection. So the argument goes, if Jesus so entrusted women in his own ministry, let them learn and sit at his feet. Let them be witnesses to his resurrection. Let them participate in his ministry as he traveled around. Then there is no limit that should be put on women at all. All ministry is under this new era of the kingdom, open to women and men alike without distinction. The fact that there are 12 male apostles or that any kind of male headship is mentioned in Scripture is merely a cultural accommodation for the witness of the gospel in which patriarchy was still present in society. Therefore, it is only temporary in nature. They believe that Jesus, in the seeds of the gospel, laid the foundation for an eradication of all distinction between male and female in terms of role. The key issue here is understanding authority and submission. We're going to come back to that next week. Let me just move to the New Testament here. Open your Bible to Galatians chapter 3.28. Galatians 3.28. What we're going to do is just look at some of these key passages and say what is God's instruction to us as male and female within the church. Galatians 3.28 stands at the head of all Feminist teaching, egalitarian teaching. Actually, beginning in verse 27. Oh, excuse me, verse 25. Let's, let's read. But now faith has come. We are no longer under a tutor, for you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free man. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Adam's descendants, heirs according to the promise. This is, for all egalitarian teaching, remember egalitarian simply meaning that there is no distinction of male or female in role, in authority, in submission, in any sense of the word. This is a foundational text, either explicitly or implicitly used in every argument. It's seen as a paradigmatic statement that reestablishes the original order of creation and removes, again, all gendered authority and submission. The problem with that is this. That Paul here is not addressing the matter of relationships or order either within the home or within the church. The argument of Paul in verse 29 is that both male and female, Jew and Greek, slave and free man is equally an heir of the promise in Christ Jesus. It has nothing to do at all with roles of male or female. It has nothing to do at all with leadership within the home or within the church. As one has put it succinctly, it's about church membership, not church leadership point here is that all have equal access in Christ. You are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. The Jew does not have a more privileged access than the Gentile. The slave does not have, or the free man does not have a more privileged access than the slave. The the male has no more privileged access than the female. Each are equal footing before God in Christ. To make it say anything about the roles of male and female is simply to go beyond what the text says. 
And yet, there is, at the same time, implicit here, the principle of dignity of human, humanity, and particularly those in the church that did lay the seeds for the abolishment of the system of slavery, for giving a dignity to all men equally, sharing in his saving benefits. And in fact, this was a teaching of the Christian church that did elevate the status of women within the Jewish culture particularly and in the wider culture as well. But particularly here in the Jewish culture in which it was, in fact, seen as overall, this is sometimes overstated, but inferior to be born a woman rather than a man. As a matter of fact, they had an ancient prayer that said, Blessed is he who did not make me a Gentile, a boar, that is an ignorant peasant or slave, or a woman. Greek philosophy bore the same attitude. But here, all are elevated to that honored dignity and position of receiving equally the benefits of Christ who trust in Him by faith. So while male and female are on equal footing with God, each fully possessing the image of God, endowed with dignity, intelligence, wisdom, strength of character, God's design bears characteristics yet still for each gender that are uniquely fit for specific roles. And this is established in those teachings of the New Testament that do specifically deal with this. So in other words, Galatians 3.28 is not a principled statement for all male-female relations. It is an absolute statement about our equality in Christ, our unity in Christ. But God does give specific instructions to the church in how the gendered relationships are to work out among his people. And so let's look at those and... Look at the first in 1 Corinthians 11. 1 Corinthians 11, chapter 2. And again, we'll just look at this briefly. How then are we supposed to relate? If Genesis 3, or Galatians 3.28 is not debunking Genesis chapter 2, if it's not abolishing all roles of gender, male and female, then how are we to relate well, 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Paul says, But I want you to understand, verse 3, that Christ is the head of every woman, and the man is the head of a woman, and God is the head of Christ. Every man who has something on his head while praying or prophesying disgraces his head. Every woman who has uh, her head cover, uncovered while praying or prophesying disgraces her head, for she is one and the same as the woman whose head is shaved. For if a woman does not cover her head, let her also have her hair cut off. But if it is disgraceful for a woman to have her hair cut off or her head shaved, let her cover her head. For man ought not to have his head uncov- to have his head covered, since he is the image and glory of God. But the woman is the glory of man. For man does not originate from woman, but woman from man. For indeed, man was not created for the woman's sake, but woman for the man's sake. Therefore, the woman ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angel's However, in the Lord, neither is woman independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. For as the woman originates from the man, so also the man has his birth through the woman, and all things originate from God. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not even nature itself teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a dishonor to him? But if a woman has long hair, it is a glory for her, for her hair is given to her for a covering. But if one is inclined to be contentious, we have no other practice, nor have the churches of God. 
Now, there's a lot there, and I imagine many have read that with some confusion. One has rightly said that one fact that makes this passage difficult to interpret is that Paul combines several types of appeal and the rationale for his instructions, creation order, common sense, and cultural convention. So Paul here is addressing a particular situation in the first century church at Corinth. For us, it is important to notice that while he is applying specific cultural applications that aren't completely clear to us and is not the purpose primarily of our mentioning this passage this morning, but he is applying the foundation of an ordered relationship grounded in the creation of male and female that is to supersede any cultural nuance and establish before all the watching world the right ordered relationship of male and female in authority and submission. Now the key to interpreting this then is to distinguish the elements, what is cultural and what is biblical in terms of foundational to the created order. It is important to know that Paul is applying here a theological principle. A theological principle. Notice here in verse 3. I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every woman and the man is the head of a woman and God is the head of Christ. Headship here then marks the ordered relationship of authority and submission that is itself inherent within the divine relationships of the Godhead. In other words, God is the head of Christ. Christ submitted to the Father. Christ obeyed the Father. Father. Christ was subordinate in his role to the Father. Reflective of that is man's relationship as the head of a woman. And the man himself operating under the headship of Christ, who is the head of every man. In other words, what happens in the church and what happens in the home is reflective of God's own very nature. And none would say that Christ, no biblical Christian, that Christ was somehow inferior to the Father. It was a voluntary submission equal in his honor as God and yet submitted in his role as the Son incarnate to accomplish salvation. Paul established this as the theological foundation for everything that will, he will say afterwards. In other words, he's not merely making an, a, a cultural accommodation. He is establishing a cultural application on the unmovable theological truth of order within the Godhead and within the home and gendered roles. Verses 4 through 6, he says, Every man has something on his head praying, prophesying, disgraces his head. Every woman has her head uncovered while praying, disgraces her head. She's one and the same with the woman whose head is unshaved. There's, of course, some questions of exactly what is the cultural situation here. Some surmise, which is uh, probably likely, that this is to referring the one who has her head shaved, the prostitutes and others who had this, uh, who did that. And thus, by doing that, By having her head uncovered, the woman is there displaying an attitude of rebellion. That publicly, it's a lack of submission. And Paul is addressing that as the cultural instance of these instructions. Verse 5, he mentions the woman praying or prophesying. 
while in this situation. There's two possible ways to understand that, that either praying and prophesying were in public, but not in the context of gathered worship. In other words, by Paul allowing that, he's not allowing women to exercise authority because this isn't a public gathering. It's also possible and likely, and I'll mention this later, that the gift of prophecy which women did have, for example, Acts 21.9, Philip's four daughters were female prophets in the new church, but prophecy itself was not an exercise of authority. However, the evaluation of prophecy, in other words, the spirit of prophets or subject to prophets, was an attitude of authority which Paul will condemn in chapter 14. We'll look at that in just a sec. In either case, the point being addressed is this. Women were not behaving in ways that openly demonstrated subordination to male authority. That's the point. Look at verse 7. That's where he grounds it. For a man ought not to have his head covered, since he is the image and glory of God, but the woman is the glory of man. For man did not originate from woman, but woman from man. For indeed, man was not created for woman's sake, but woman for the man's sake. And that is the foundation for her having a symbol of authority on her head. Paul is making a clear reference to Genesis chapter 2 and the creation of man and woman. What's interesting to note here is in that Genesis 26, both male and female are said to be in the image of God. But here, Paul attaches image directly to man and, and then switches the language to glory and says that woman, man was created in the image of God, but woman was created for the glory of man. This is not denying the image of God in women. Is simply talking about the relation of woman to man, not the relation of woman to God. It's reflecting the opening statement in verse 3, that man and his authority, relation to creation and to his wife, images the dominion of God over creation and the headship of Christ over his church. Why is man mentioned in this role? Because man was the one created first and entrusted with the rule over creation. Woman was created second to be his helper. Verse 9, the woman was created for man's sake, not man for the woman's sake. One is noted by being such a glad and willing helper in serving God, not serving her husband. She reflects honor to him. She glorifies him. We find this truth hard to accommodate because we forget the woman was made not to serve her husband, but to help her husband in the service of God. That is to say, what is being reflected here in connection with the creation mandate is that the idea of women, a woman being the helper of man is to say she is the helper. The end result of that isn't so much the husband himself, but it is the husband in his task of ruling over creation and the woman is the helper, his helper in that task. And the importance of this is that it, places the subordinate role of the woman into the larger picture of service to God. Submitting to the husband's leadership is submitting to the Lord himself, serving the Lord by serving your husband, helping him to fulfill the role that God has called him to, to lead and protect and to provide. Now, he'll mention this later. The husband's task, of course, is to be self-sacrificing in his leadership, to serve, use his authority to serve, not command. Husbands, your authority is not that you might command your wife, but it is that you might serve your wife and lead her and protect her and provide her and tenderly care for every need physically, emotionally, and spiritually. 
Again, he applies this in verse 10. That, that is the reason that the woman ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. What does that mean? Well, it's difficult to be overly precise, but most likely he refers to angels as the observer of God's people, the observer of God's wisdom in creation, even in this exercise or demonstration of male and female within the church of authority and submission. We know that angels observe God's work. Ephesians chapter 3, they marvel at his wisdom. 1 Peter 1, 10, they marvel at his grace. Notice in verse 12, he balances this out. For as the woman originates from the man, so also the man has his birth through the woman, and all things originate from God. And Paul here then balances the instruction and guards against any sense of superiority of male and female, showing that we are dependent on each other, interdependent at the most fundamental level of existence. Therefore, the distinction of roles in no way implies superiority or inferiority. Only God has uncreated status. We are under His rule and we equally share in the dignity of being made in His image, but with very designed roles. Look just briefly at 1 Corinthians 14. I know we're just going quickly. He says, now he's speaking in the gathered church. He says, for God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. He's talking about the chaotic use of tongues. As in all the churches of the saints, the women are to keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but are subject to themselves, just as the law also says. If they desire to learn anything, let them ask their own husbands at home, for it is improper for a woman to speak in church. What is he talking about here? Again, just quickly, this is a further application of what he's already established in chapter 11. Namely, that women are to demonstrate the role of subordination within the gathered church. Men are to exercise the leadership. That is their role. That is their role. Now, how does this connect? If women are not allowed to speak, is this a contradiction of chapter 11? It's a few ways, actually many ways this is answered. One say that it refers to an outburst group goes down this line anyway, that it refers to a disordered outburst of women in the service. Others say that it is here talking about the gathered church, whereas in chapter 11, it's not. More likely, as what I mentioned earlier, is that Paul is here saying that the women can prophesy in connection with 11.5, that to evaluate prophecy is a position of authority and that is denied that that is not a proper role, that they are to go home and then ask their husbands. So here's the order. The church gathers. The church is exercising ministry. This ministry is to clearly demonstrate the headship of men and the subordination, the submission of women to an ordered service. That's the idea. This also implies, however, men, that men need to be be able to answer the questions at home. In other words, the male leadership here is that men need to be men who can lead, men who can shepherd their wives, men who are students of the word. But in either case, there is to be an ordered relationship of these roles within the church. One has said this, many women are tempted to go beyond their biblical roles because of frustration with Christian men, often including their own husbands, who do not responsibly fulfill the leadership assignments God has given them, but God has established the 
order and relationship of male-female roles in the church, and they are not to be transgressed for any reason. So men, are you the kind of leader at home that can shepherd your wife with questions from the Word? Women, are you understanding your role in such a way that your, your giftedness and your knowledge, even if it's greater than your husband, does not usurp your role as helper and to honor him in his role as head? One last passage. Again, this is the last one. 1 Timothy 2, chapter 9. Paul gives the same instruction and he says... I want women to adorn themselves with proper clothing, modestly and discreetly, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or costly garments, but rather by means of good works, as is proper for women making a claim to godliness. A woman must quietly receive instruction with entire submissiveness, but I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. For it was Adam who was first created and then Eve, and it was not Adam who was deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression." But women will be preserved through the bearing of children if they continue in faith, love, and sanctity with self-restraint. Paul is writing here, as he said in verse three fifteen, or chapter three, verse fifteen, how one ought to conduct themselves in the church of God. Again, we don't have time to go into the details here. The argument is, is Paul is making a cultural accommodation. Again, that is dismissed by. The foundation of his argument is creation and the fall. Verse 13, for this is the explanation. It was Adam who was first created and then Eve. And it was not Adam who was deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. This is a universal statement of order within the church. Gendered order based on creation and the fall. Creation established the pattern and role of authority and submission in the fall demonstrated the consequences of ignoring and transgressing these roles. Again, this is absolutely clear. Women will be preserved through the bearing of children if they continue in faith, love, and sanctity with self-restraint. Some say that is through the birth of the Savior, ultimately as the mother of all living through whom Christ came, born of a woman. As not... Not as likely, more likely here is that the bearing of children and they continue in faith, love, and sanctity with self-restraint means that the stigma, the dishonor of being the one who led the human race into sin is removed as a godly generation is raised to exercise God's rule over the earth. This is the established order of male and female within the church. Now, we'll look at this within the home next week as we come to 1 Peter chapter 3 and say, how does this work out within the home? And how does this specifically work out when you do have a man who is either an unbeliever, which is directly what Paul is referring to in 1 Peter 3, or one who is living in disobedience, even a believer who's living in disobedience to the Word? Does this deny or remove this Role or this command of God? The answer is no. But we get into some thorny issues there as well, which we'll seek to unfold next week. But the point here is this. It's just this. Is that submission 
is a command of the Lord. Submission is not to be forced, nor can it be. It is the glad expression of faith in Christ by the woman to honor him and to fulfill the role that God has designed so that not only may she flourish, but we may know the flourishing and the blessing of God in the home. Authority is trusted to men, but it is an authority which is to be lived out, to serve, to undergird with protection, provision, care, and love within the home that makes the submission of the woman a delight and not a chore. And all of this reflects perfectly Christ's own obedience to the Father, which we celebrate this morning in the table. Namely this, that Christ was the perfect display of both. Though he has all authority in heaven and earth, though he has all authority as the creator of all men, standing as the head of creation, he yet was perfectly submissive to the Father, not as a sign of inferiority or weakness, but as the Savior of all, reconciling all things to the Father. It's a sign of his great strength, his great dignity, his great worth. And submitting to him as Lord and submitting to his design, we submit to him who modeled it in his own life and infused it with great dignity, honor, glory, and blessing. As the men come forward, let me pray and then we'll take these elements uh, together. Father, thank you for uh, giving us such clarity amidst the confusion of the world that would attack what is good, what you have created is good and call it evil. But what we as your church stand out as different from the world, may we stand out as those who rejoice in your good design and your good will and model all that you have designed for us as male and female made in your image. And we know we can only do this when we have first experienced the forgiveness of sin and the power of the gospel and the presence of the Spirit in our own life that enables us to live consistent with your will and to your honor and to your glory. Help us to be committed to these things, particularly now as we remember you in the table. In your name, Jesus, amen.